Tillin, a Welsh word for Celtic harp. Welcome to Tillin Tales, a podcast that uses harp music to draw you into a realm that combines science and creativity to uncover the magic in our everyday reality. I'm Sophia Matson, a researcher, writer, musician, teacher, and now podcaster. I act as a shop an old English word spelled S-C-O-P, but pronounced kind of like you're a little British and you're talking about a retail shop. A shop is a minstrel that tells stories while playing an instrument. As a harpist and storyteller, that's kind of what I am. Until in tales can be a scientific shop or a poetic shop. The magical allure of the harp will either draw you into the subject matter or lure you to sleep. Just let it happen, but prepare to experience your mind weaving together unexpected areas of science and folklore in my little ethereal soundscape. This week is Thanksgiving, which you can Pavlovian condition yourself to also associate with Native American Heritage Month, if your mind doesn't already go there, but it's about time. Today we're going to talk about whales and trees and I'm going to talk a lot about native cultures, particularly in the Arctic region of the world. But I want to just note that I do not speak for these cultures. I'm merely just reading things in books and online and relaying this information to connect things into a larger scope of what I would like you to understand. Massive, long-lived, and incredibly strong, historically used for fuel, rooting themselves in depths we could never fathom. A different system of breathing, social creatures, they suffer from loneliness and communicate via vibrations beneath the surface. Many ecosystem havens for multitudes of organisms living upon and within. When we die, Depending on where we are, we may become one in our next life. These are all common factors and human ideas of whales and trees, but that's just the surface. Whales and trees have permeated our subconscious similarly, too. If you haven't listened to my tree episode on how trees impact culture and behavior, I would recommend that. I have been daydreaming amongst trees my whole life, but when it comes to dreams in my sleep, I have yet to experience a surreal encounter with a tree. I had a dream of whales the other night. Because I have tried once to have a spiritual encounter with the sea in County Kerry in Ireland, I dreamt I was there. I was walking with a couple of people that have given me a lot in the past couple years people that I have come to love and trust in my recent life. As I looked out to see, whales breached the surface. I didn't just see them. I felt their presence and strength as they flew from the surface into the air and crashed down with the waves. I wept. I'm still in awe that the whales would visit me in my precious dreams. I feel as though I'm being watched over by guardians like some greater presence feels emotions in tandem with my own. My emotions that almost uncontrollably escalate and crash as quickly 
as the waves on the shore. And the whales leapt out from the depths, while those two people stood by me, and I felt profoundly grateful. Now let's dive into the whale like Mr. Geppetto, the father figure from Pinocchio. If you haven't seen Guillermo, Guillermo, my gosh, Guillermo del Toro, his version of Pinocchio on Netflix, you're certainly missing out. So when Geppetto embarks on his adventure to find his lost puppet son, he is swallowed alive by a whale. Taking after the biblical story of Jonah and the whale, Geppetto is forced into a dark abyss, seemingly defeated by death. However, a glimpse of light shines down from the blowhole, giving Geppetto a chance for rebirth and purpose in life to find his lost son. In the belly of the whale, the weak accept defeat, but innovation and persistence is the ticket to ascension. In our human mind, we tend to appoint the whale as the ocean's representative, and rightfully so. Whales, a massive body, are fundamental to every oceanic organism's health, but also organisms on land. They generate a cycle called the whale pump. First, whales feed in the deep sea. Then they circulate the nutrients from the depths as they swim to the surface. And released from oceanic pressure, they're finally able to defecate at the surface, which releases nutrients for phytoplankton, which are little organisms that float at the top of the water that serve a similar purpose as a forest on land. They absorb nearly a third of all human-generated carbon emissions, which is similar to the amount of all Earth's ecosystems combined. While phytoplankton release half of the Earth's oxygen, which one website described as supplying every other breath you take, they also supply the entire food chain for marine organisms Whales keep this system going. If the whale represents the ocean, what do oceans represent to us? How does the ocean impact our emotions and behavior? A study published in 2022 by Marine I. Severin et al. I really like that name. Surveyed a small sample of Belgium coastal residents in their early 20s and it identified how emotions reported when exposed to a coastal environment contributed to the overall effect of well-being that coastal scenes bring. So basically, they're trying to figure out what emotions people feel when they visit the beach. Quote, The coast represents a safe haven in which they can experience emotional restoration, one, awe, two, and nostalgia, three. These emotional states are accompanied with adaptive emotion-regulating strategies, such as reflection and positive reappraisal, that may facilitate coping with difficult thoughts and feelings, end quote. So basically, when you visit the ocean, you get a sense of awe and nostalgia, as well as emotional restoration, which all help facilitate coping mechanisms. Nostalgia is defined by this study as a sentimental yearning for the past. Also, nostalgia is typically supplemented by sensory stimuli, 
which are all the things that can, you know, catch your senses, whether it be hearing or touch or pressure or vision or temperature. So all of these sensory stimuli experienced and triggered to make nostalgia happen are stored in the memory, especially by a very stimulating environment such as the coast. And they taste a smell of seaweed and salt, along with the cannon of the waves and the grainy or maybe hot sand, is really easy to remember. Awe is described as a feeling of experiencing something larger than the self. That realization that you are small in a big, complicated web of things you could never understand. Your personal aspirations become less important as your awe-inspired perspective expands. Awe is usually associated with art, music, and panoramic views of natural landscapes. (laughs) Both awe and nostalgia are overwhelming. They're jumbled up mixes of many feelings experienced all in one hit. And emotional restoration, while somewhat described as feelings of peace and relaxation, give way to restored energy and fortitude. So it's like this peaceful energizing. And all of these emotional experiences contribute to your well-being. But we don't need science to know that a visit to the ocean does us some good. And we also know that water is more reflective in more ways than an external mirror. Quickly, ripples on the surface reflect and embody physical sensation, and the mirrored external image is distorted. There is more beneath the surface. Some people look away in fear of what may come out of the darkness. Some are pushed into the sea against their will, but others willingly dive in to explore. I watched John Numier's The Little Mermaid, performed by the Joffrey Ballet in Chicago this past year. Their version alluded to the personal discovery and heartbreak of queerness, where the character of the poet, not included in the Disney version of The Little Mermaid, became the shadow or puppet master of The Little Mermaid as she transforms to win over the prince. On a boat is the wedding reception for the prince and his bride. Caught under the bride's veil, the sulking poet appears, whose unrequited love for the prince influences him to find an escape. And he looks into the depths and jumps into his sunken dream. At the bottom of the sea, where dancers linger as mindless floating jellyfish, the little mermaid rises from the sand. She is born... Weightless and sensual, she dances with the current. But then, Ursula the sea witch begins to stir things up. The prince's ship is sunk by Ursula's storm, and the prince sinks to the bottom of the sea. The mermaid, shadowed by the poet, finds him in these depths, falls in love, and brings him back to land. She explores the body of the prince one last time, before a schoolgirl finds him and pumps the seawater from his lungs, awakening him from this dream. Fast forward, the Little Mermaid decides to make a deal with the sea witch to become human, 
so the prince can fall in love with her. In becoming someone else, her weightless sensuality is replaced by heavy clumsiness. Not only does she struggle to swim to the surface, but her new skin is raw and painful against the stinging air. As she rejects her once fluid form, her rigid machine-like actions attempt to mirror others. In the end, she never wins the love of the prince. The prince's love for the little mermaid represents his queerness as it will forever be deep within his subconscious, never to surface. The little mermaid is doomed to a life of loneliness and embarrassment. This production used the mermaid and ultimately the sea to show a true reflection of society. The mermaid, a human-fish hybrid, is a romanticized whale. In fact, the Tikigak Inuit whalers associate women's souls and whale souls as one, which makes a lot of sense considering larger whales, including orcas, typically live in a matriarchal society. A grandmother orca may live over 100 years, and one bowhead whale estimated to be 211 years old, with their average life expectancy being around 150 to 170-ish years. But grandmother whales increase life expectancy for new calves, likely from the many years of knowledge regarding food and safety. And with whales playing a major role in the sea's circulation and rhythm, it's no wonder that sailors have referred to the ocean as feminine. Another source I found quotes, For the Tikigok people of Point Hope, Alaska, which is the oldest continuously settled Native American site on the continent, the annual cycle of myth and magic that culminated in the spring whale hunt shaped every aspect of their life for over 1,500 years. Packed close for half the year in underground whalebone igloos connected by tunnels, Tikigok people formed complex webs of kinship and alliance, but they were also connected to ancestor spirits, the spirits of the sun and moon, and the animals they worshipped and ate. The peninsula itself was once, according to myth, a great whale, killed by a primal shamanic harpineer that lived on as land, part body and part spirit. End quote. In the spring whale hunt for bowhead whales, the Tikigok people perform a ritual between man and woman, in which the women made themselves passive and calm as to connect their spirit with the whales, making them passive and calm, and eventually the whales surrendering themselves to be speared and repurposed for the land. These igloo passages supported by whale bones were canals for birth, passages of death, and everything in between. And it makes sense because the sea is what gave rise to the birth and evolution of land in the first place. These matriarchal whale pods form cultures, where culture is defined as social learning passed down through generations. Whales with nearly identical DNA of the same species but different regions have formed different dialects in their language beneath the sea just as humans do on land. And I know I should say believed, 
but I think it would give injustice to Inuit cultures who dedicated their lives to understanding and interacting with whales to say they merely believed instead of knew that whales lived in societies that mirrored ours. The Yupik believed belugas once walked the land. And yeah, turns out 50 million years ago, the ancestors of whales walked on land before evolving back for sea life. Now, whale fetuses briefly develop legs before losing them again. The thing is that anthropologists for a long time have been trained to think that ancient Inuit cultures and many other ancient human cultures would not do anything that wasn't what we considered directly relevant to survival. So upon finding bones placed in perfect circles for ceremonial rituals, scientists were confused on the survival purpose, even though they could also just speak directly with living native people. Humans have carried ancient knowledge of evolution and animal communication that Western science has completely disregarded. It was not until recently that we have understood animals to have emotions, let alone form cultures and societies. Much of native philosophy included animals and plants as having spirits, personalities, motives, and preferences. Native people of the Arctic have formed elaborate rituals to not offend the whales, such as staying very quiet so as not to disturb whales' peace, performing specific songs to whales, and bathing in specific pools. Some believed whales had longed to return to land, so they willingly gave themselves up to humans. In the Yupik tradition of killing a beluga, they would offer the deceased whale fresh water and amulets to guarantee its spirit a safe journey back to the land. Many of these whale hunting cultures decorate their boats and clean their boats and also offer an amulet to the whale, the living whale, so that when they're hunting, the whale can decide whether they want to give themselves up to those people. The Nucha Nuths, Nuths? Oh, you guys, I'm really just trying to read these things, and if you know how to pronounce them, definitely tell me. The Nucha Nuths have a legend of a white wolf that transformed into an orca. And it might be ridiculous in the Western lens, especially back then, but now we know that orcas evolved from wolf-like creatures with hooves. Is like a wolf deer, basically just creatures of the forest. Many also knew of the physiological capabilities invisible to our eyes. In Yupiat hunters claimed the whales would be driven away by the smell of smoke, but Western scientists didn't believe that until it was proven that whales could smell by a Dutch scientist. But is it really so hard to believe that whales did not give themselves up when whales have had cultures and knowledge from being around for millions of years, when they have once walked this very earth and returned to the sea, when they have explored the depths of an ocean that we have not yet explored, when a bowhead whale found in 2007 in northern Alaska carried a harpoon tip lodged in her head, that was manufactured sometime between 1879 and 1995, making her carry that burden of knowledge for 117 years. 
If Inuit peoples claim whale societies to be equal to human societies, I wouldn't doubt it for a second, and I would even say they are more intelligent and grand. 95% of the deep ocean is unexplored by humans. And while we are trying to discover the secrets of our planet, we're destroying our chances from our contributions towards pollution. One Time Magazine article that sparked this entire episode reported the debate among climate scientists on whether natural preservation funds should be concentrated on whales or trees, as one great whale with the capability of capturing up to 33 tons of carbon is worth thousands of trees. As keen as I am on saving the whales in the name of ridding the earth of carbon dioxide, there are many flaws to the very grounding of this argument. First, whale preservation laws are harming indigenous communities, particularly in the Arctic. Inuit peoples, which are different native peoples to the Arctic regions of Canada, Alaska, Greenland, and Siberia, some of which I have previously discussed, use the whales resourcefully. A 1989 article published by Nancy C. Doubleday, another pretty good name, touches on how environmentalists have largely formatted their arguments against industrialism, but end up harming native people's lifeways. Quote, Western urban industrial society takes the opposite approach, promoting unending growth at the expense of nature, changing only the mode of exploitation, never decreasing the level of the demand. This is due in part to the separation of urban industrial man from nature. For him, nature becomes an object to be exploited, whereas nature for a hunter, attuned to the spiritual connections among living things, is an extension of self. The fundamental philosophical difference has many consequences. It is at the root of the conflict between environmentalists and indigenous peoples because the environmentalist response to environmental deterioration has been a backlash against this perception of the overexploitation of nature. Nature is sanctified, but man remains outcast under this regime and environmentalists adopt the role of speaking for animals. End quote. We love to separate ourselves from nature, and surprisingly, the vegans end up doing it too. We think we're speaking for the animals like we actually have any connection or knowing what they want, when there are cultures still alive today that have dedicated their lives to hearing the animals and the nature around us. Back to the point of that Time magazine article. Whales, as we have learned, are more than just carbon dioxide tanks. We must not view them in one dimension as they need an entire ocean and a full lifetime to be capable of fixing our human pollution and global warming problem in the first place. They have to live a full life, sink all the way to the bottom of the ocean so they can then store the carbon dioxide for hundreds of years. We cannot grow whales in a lab, and we cannot view them as serving one purpose. There's no way to make whales into this human system for getting rid of our human pollution.
and the ridiculousness of the argument for preserving whales over trees is the very conflation of the two. There are massive amounts of carbon stored within arctic glaciers. As they melt, the carbon is released. The trees preserve the cool ambience for the earth to keep this carbon stored within glaciers. And the oceans also must remain a certain temperature for sea life to survive, for phytoplankton to store carbon, and ultimately for the whale to live long enough to store mass amounts of carbon. So we can't put a stop to preserving the trees in the name of saving money to preserve the whales. Why must we put the whales and trees to combat against each other when they clearly work together? Let's think about what trees mean to us. Most of the dialogue on trees is that they are effective carbon capturers, hence this argument from Time magazine. But trees, too, are multidimensional and have served human societies more than just resourcefully, spiritually, too. I don't think it's just a coincidence of whales and trees both being thought of as capturers for carbon dioxide. A tree is a life-giving force for entire communities. People in the Arctic did not really have trees the same way people inland did. Inland? I guess I wouldn't say that. But, you know, not away from the North Pole. And this might be a small stretch, but once whale hunting became a practice among Inuit peoples, they would use and think of the whale similarly to how other native cultures would use and think of a tree. Whales give more than they take, often in what was seen as a sacrificial manner. Trees are also givers. I could be comparing the whale to another community-sustaining and intelligent creature, such as an elephant, but where whales might be the lifeblood of the oceans, trees are the lifeblood of the land. Trees are also considered all-knowing giants of the earth. Arborists and botanists are having more fun and are taking more seriously than they ever have before when they speak of plant intelligence. Trees have vast communication systems underground, where roots mimic neurons passing signals from one synapse to the next, especially with the mycelium facilitator, which are mushrooms, basically or I should say fungi, trees can warn other trees of enemies. They know the knowledge of poison from dead trees or new baby friends that are born on the ground, all through this web of roots and fungi networks. They know who belongs to their family and who to block the sun from to ensure their own species' survival. Trees have given food, shelter, and wisdom to humans since humans were born. It was not until Christianity when both whales and trees were seen as soulless, even demonic entities, because of their wisdom and otherly form. I'll get into that later. But in many communities across the world, killing a tree was akin to killing a human clan. Humans knew that all life depended on their oldest tree, and the trees surrounding it. Trees have been cared for by humans with song and worship. 
ancient cultures believed, but really they knew, that trees could listen. In fact, trees do hear, especially when it comes to water. They use vibrations in the ground to grow towards water sources. And other studies have shown that foliage growth increases when listening to certain music, although we aren't totally sure how to test that fully yet. But we do know that mycelium certainly responds to low-frequency sounds, using thunder as an audible indicator to get themselves ready for absorbing rainwater. Mushrooms and trees are kind of a tag team, where eating mushrooms has given humans life-enhancing and even mind-altering effects. When we eat the fruit of the forest, we gain wisdom and health, or death, that too. Even in death, we lay down to rest on the land that informed us, becoming part of the land, allowing the trees to absorb our nutrients, telling the land what has killed the human, what has killed the other animal, what has allowed us to live. Like ancient tellings of whales and arctic cultures that apparently dragged our bodies to the depths to be reborn as a whale ourselves, we can also be reborn as trees. The trees may understand our intentions, but the lack of ability for mobile reaction time kind of makes it difficult for us to see that. However, that doesn't mean they aren't able to release signals of communication persuasion, or even just take a cultural stance on how to interact with humans. That's right, I said culture, trees, and cultures. Perhaps a person with a really bad vibe could get killed by a dead tree, you know, kind of pushed along by the other trees sensing the bad vibes of that human and pushing the dead tree to fall on them. But that's just my own folktale. Truly, though, plant's strength is preying on those who already have it coming. They kind of know how to capture the weak. There is, in fact, a tree called the Manchineel that grows in the southern states of North America and in South America, and it mimics an apple tree. It is deemed the most dangerous tree on earth, which is funny considering trees are usually useful. The colonizer Christopher Columbus named this fruit Manzanilla de la Muerte, or a little apple of death. Although he unfortunately did not die from it. <laughs> its fruit smells and tastes deceptively sweet. But one bite can cause hours of blistering agony and even death. But it's not just tiny poison apples. The bark, leaves, and sap burn skin. Right when you think you're grabbing shade from the beach under a sweet-smelling tree. You are burned in its shade. If you find shelter beneath it in a rainstorm, you're burned by the dripping sap and leaf extracts carried through raindrops. I'd like to think this is the tree's elaborate plan and revenge, especially against the colonizers. In fact, many sailors have been affected by this tree taking its fruit back on their voyage and perishing from it. It's not just orcas that sink ships. One article tells this story, quote, During a voyage, 
the legendary Captain James Cook and his crew came upon the Manchineel. His men needed supplies, so Cook ordered them to collect fresh water and chop Manchineel wood. During this process, crew members rubbed their eyes, which reportedly resulted in their blindness for two weeks. Shipwrecked sailors have been reported to have eaten Manchineel fruits, which caused inflammation and blistering around the mouth. End quote. Don't feel too bad for them. James Cook enabled Britain to colonize Australia and the Hawaiian Islands. In fact, Captain Cook's attempt to capture the native Hawaiian chief, um, Kolaniopu, which led to, um, that led to Cook's death from trying to capture the native chief. So, that's the end of that. And it makes complete sense to me that sailors suffered from their ignorance and disrespect to people, to land, and to think the trees do not know us is foolish. Like I said, they have this ability to culturally learn, to socially learn. They have the ability to communicate and pass down their knowledge to the baby trees. The whales, too, know people and are familiar with families and were said to only give themselves up to well-meaning, sincere people. They were believed to hear it in the hunter's summoning song and the intention behind the vocables in the song, which are sounds like hey, ya, and na, things that we still use in today's pop music. And these vocables are used to convey emotion, right? So some sources say these sounds are unintelligible and carry no meaning, but indeed, these sounds carry great emotional valence. This is one of my favorite concepts because we can define many sounds as unintelligible, yet even thunder makes us feel something. Sounds somehow form these meanings. We can create an emotion from two notes back to back. I couldn't a whale understand the sound the way we can when they can hear vibrations carried through the water from thousands of miles away, and they've been doing this for millions of years. And as long as trees are connected to the other trees and webs of mycelium, they can hear too. It's like, you can kind of tell about a person the way they sound and their tone and the certain words they use and the way that they walk and the rhythms that they create. In terms of another sense, whales can't really discriminate vision too well unless it's the color red, or it's with shadows. And this is similar to how trees and other plants see, not with eyes, but through light and shadow detection. We don't know yet about colors, but I'm not going to be the one that says it's impossible. I want to tell the story of Jonah and the whale. It's biblical. So Jonah is attempting to find a land without God, to be above God's order, which could be argued as the natural order. Jonah was thrown into the tempestuous sea, which is the word they used in the King James Version of the Bible, and God had Jonah swallowed by a giant fish, which is speculated as a whale. And in the biblical story of Adam and Eve, Eve is tempted by the apple, which is a word I usually associate with Eve. Temptation. 
I think it's funny that, like, they use the word tempestuous and temptation, not that they're the same word, but that both are really emotional, right? And when she eats the forbidden fruit, Adam's also tempted to bite the fruit. She and Adam are banished from the Garden of Eden to suffer. Both Jonah and Adam and Eve wanted to rise above God's commands. They disobeyed and were banished to some kind of hellish place. And like I said earlier, the rise of Christianity, associating the devil with many natural forms and phenomena, gave rise to our current dissociation of nature. Herman Melville's Moby Dick sums it up well with this passage, describing the hatred of the main character, Ahab, for the whale, Moby Dick. Quote, All the subtle dimensions of life and thought, all evil to crazy Ahab, were visibly personified in Moby Dick. He piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the general rage and hate felt by his whole race from Adam down. End quote. Basically, this is all rage against God. It's all rage against nature, against whales and oceans and trees. When we do not heed nature's warnings, hellish things occur. An older story than either Jonah and the Whale and Adam and Eve is called The Night Sea Journey, which depicts a hero caught in the belly of the whale attempting an escape. His severing of the whale's heart and lighting of fire within the whale allows him to beat death, ultimately alluding to man's forced disconnection from natural order and natural systems. In killing the whale, in killing what is nature, we're able to kind of beat death, to live longer, to do things that we're not allowed to do. And to me, whales and trees assume this Chinese philosophy of yin-yang, where yin is the dark feminine presence, which are whales, and yang is the light masculine presence, which are trees. Trees are kind of these long shapes, these male shapes. And whales live in the ocean, and they're associated with women. <laughs> That's about it. That's as far as I'm going to go right now off the top of my head. But one website described whales and the whale pump as gardeners. Gardening is a constant give and take. And in Celtic lore, the nine hazels of science and poetry surround a sacred well connecting all streams of wisdom or rivers to the ocean. In the sacred well is a salmon which eats a hazelnut fallen from the trees and from that hazelnut the salmon gains ultimate wisdom and knowledge and it's said that whoever eats the salmon will inherit this wisdom. And who eats salmon? Orcas which are frequently recorded in northern Irish waters. Nuts and fish, both packed with omega-3s, vitamins that help our brain. A forest, like an ocean, evokes the same feelings of awe, nostalgia, and emotional restoration as the seacoast. Unchanging to the naked eye, but always moving, always in rhythm, the sound of wind currents through leaves and the smell of cedar. The tree's roots are widespread and deep, 
feeling all vibrations made in the soil and cleansing the rivers that reach the sea. And emotions are constant in our brain. For nature to have the power to elicit specific emotions is magical, but completely within the realm of science. We know now that disrespecting the whale by taking and taking without awe or wonder for their existence, we destroy the planet. When we take from trees without awe or wonder for their existence, we destroy the planet. We cause ripples in the land and sea. We cause literal storms that devastate our planet. So next time you see a tree or a whale, pay it some mind. Sing it a song from your heart. Allow emotions to not be some kind of magical little stupid feeling that make you make bad decisions. Emotions are forever present. Emotions always exist in your brain constantly. It is how we allocate these emotions and it's where we experience these emotions that makes emotion so significant to us. You can kind of be in control, but also surrender yourself to certain environments. And this will hopefully, I think, allow us to control the rhythms of the earth if we are exposing ourselves to these places of awe and nostalgia we're able to make more mindful decisions and care for the world around us humans have believed both whales and trees to know us and to know the systems in this world to be familiar with our families, to speak for our ancestors, and to speak for the greater good. There lies the core connection between whales and trees. I like to think that Nuts and fish are kind of like eating mushrooms, which are also just like eating mushrooms, which are beneficial for your brain, but they're kind of mind-altering. They're literally mind-altering, even if you're not hallucinating. But you definitely don't need to take those mushrooms. If you thought this podcast episode was mind-altering, please share it with your friends and family that will accept this sort of subject whales and trees <laughs> that won't think you're too weird if you share this with them but if you're brave share it with the whole world or you can also contribute monetarily on my patreon at patreon.com slash tales which is patreon.com slash t-e-l-y-n-t-a-l-e-s If you have any more ideas or things that you want to relate or tell me about in relation to this episode or in other episodes, you can email me at tolintales at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. That's all I have for today. And never forget that the mushrooms 
are playing telephone with the trees to tell them exactly what you've been up to lately. So you better watch out and you better not cry. Because you know who's coming to town after Thanksgiving. All right, bye-bye.